Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. I'm Molly Myers, and thanks for joining us for this session. In today's episode, I'm happy to be joined by Brad Bazargani. Brad was one of the many process safety professionals who participated in our podcast episode 84, Why Process Safety Should Matter to You. So, Brad, welcome back. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Good morning, Molly. Glad to be back. And I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this uh, important topic. And I'm, I'm happy that you guys are actually spearheading doing this. I've been 38 years in the business, roughly. And majority of it has been with oil and gas businesses. My career started around the time PSM went into effect. So we'll talk more about it in later discussions how that formed my thinking because I was part of establishing what 1910-119 was asking us to establish. I know Uh, that feeling. Right? (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, I I currently live in Oregon with my wife and no kids and no pets either because I'm traveling a lot these days and hoping that she can join me. We have uh, also rehomed our cat. Oh, uh, (laughs) All right. So, Welcome back. For today's podcast, we're going to be discussing how to integrate process safety into large capital projects because Brad has worked with some very, very large projects. Um, And so we're going to get his uh, expertise in that area. Some of the topics we're going to be covering today include when to conduct a PHA for a project and what methods you should use, how to manage changes for large projects, handling facility siting concerns, also developing operating procedures and operator training, establishment of MI programs and inspections, uh, conducting PSSRs, pre-startup safety reviews, and handling the large volume of process safety information that's obviously generated by these large projects. So with that, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's uh, jump right in. Everybody should be familiar with PHAs, process hazard analyses, and know that obviously you need one for a large project. But I always get questions of, but when should we do one? There's a lot of debate about that. Uh, So what are your thoughts on when to do a PHA for a project? This is an interesting conundrum. Ideally, you want to do a HAZOP, and and I'll come back to why I specifically point to HAZOP. Uh, in a minute, but you want to do a has up on a finished product that has little chance of change. So then you capture all the causes and consequences without having to rethink it. That's ideally. In reality, that's not going to happen because 
also in reality, when you construct something, you'll come up with something that would require a change, add a T, add a bleeder, mm-hmm. add a valve even, that could block a path of relief, for example. So you still have to keep an eye out for impact on hazards. So given that, then at minimum, a HAZOP should be done at stage gate three. Some people call it FEL3 if they do stage gate process before final funding, let's put it that way. And why is that? You want to make sure that all these safety considerations that sometimes can are not cheap. You might have to have redundant systems, et cetera, are accounted for in your cost estimate. Mm-hmm. and consequently in the schedule of install and what are we going to do, how are we going to install it, etc. So prior to final funding, a HAZOP is recommended. So let me go back to why I keep saying HAZOP, because the law requires a PHA and the law allows for what-ifs and different methodologies. And I think we right. may come to that later in the talk, but I'll just mm-hmm. go ahead and touch on that. The reason I'm a fan of HAZOP specifically is that it forces the team to not only do the hazard side mm-hmm. and and it does it very thoroughly which is very important but it also talks about the op the operating side and right. a good project should really consider the end user first exactly. so when you look at operability you can then allow for the space they need the information they need account for the training they might need by talking through them in advance which also then starts the work streams in the project in the post final funding Mm -hmm. detailed design to keep that in mind and as you go out and buy equipment now you're armed with a list of recommendations that says for this particular equipment if it's something very unique we need to have whatever it is and then when you go out to buy it you can tell the vendor right off the bat and if you hadn't done that investigation, then you're going to figure it out and start up, which is way late to do that. Right. Right. It, it gets so much more expensive to make those changes late in the project design. Absolutely. Exactly. If, yeah. if nothing else, just the frustration of operators that are mm-hmm. often left feeling like, man, nobody's thought of us at all. Um, right. And many projects don't. And part of it is, well, we don't have to go there. Yeah, that, that's unfortunate to, when it happens. Yeah, yes, it is very unfortunate. So, but specific to your question, when definitely before final funding, mm-hmm. that also means that things change. They will, in you yep. know, very likely, very normal in detail design. You find out some whatever vendor you thought is a out of business or they're not able to accommodate what you want in a timely manner. You have to shift gears, so that causes a change which mm-hmm. should be evaluated from a HAZOP standpoint, meaning you go back to your scenarios and see right. if high flow, no flow, high pressure, you know, pressure alone could right. be an issue, right? The new vendor might not have something that's rated mm-hmm. or they have a different philosophy about being rated, which now requires mm-hmm. relief. You hadn't didn't have a relief in the system. Right. So anyhow, point is that you have to pay close attention during the detailed design mm-hmm. phase to keep up with things that would impact the hazards. Almost a revalidation at the end of your design. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So so do one at least at early stage right before you request your funding to make sure you've got budgetary accommodations for all your safety requirements. And then one a revalidation or redo at the end of your design 
sometimes I've seen people also do a hazard ID, uh, more of a what if style at the very early concept phase before you even have PNIDs. You may just have a process flow diagram sketch and has some, has some ideas. Have you seen that work very well? It is a great, because if you don't have good PNIDs, HAZOP is going to be a waste of time. So exactly. you, mm-hmm. for simple ideas, when the very smart process engineers come up with ideas for projects, mm-hmm. they often have, all they have is a back of the napkin sketch. And for those, what ifs are great to just mm-hmm. catch the obvious, you know, make sure the volumes are accounted for by just talking about high level, low level, and make mm-hmm. sure the, you know, the capacity of a compressor for the flows we're considering at a high level, because that determines the cost. Those are the big right. cost items, right? So they are very useful in early concept stage, even in stage two, that you're getting closer to the better definition of the project and narrowing down the choices, looking at it from the hazard lens by using a what if or has ID is very helpful to focus the mind on the choices we have. Yeah. Okay. So the next topic I wanted to get your take on is managing changes. We talked a little bit about the fact that as you go through design and even construction, changes are inevitable. And when you're in the PSM framework and people say changes, everybody's mind goes to MOC process and management of change. But Projects are a little bit different beasts. They're not installed yet. So how do you they approach are. changes for projects? So I've, at least on my projects, have been very careful to use words that point to the handling of a change when it's not 1910-119 compliance requirement versus those that do. MLC Rightfully so, and I'm glad it's just stuck that way. When you say MOC, it's associated with the OSHA 1910, with requirements, with certain filing, you know, how do you manage it, how Mm -hmm. do you audit it, et cetera. When a project is starting, you don't have any hazard chemicals connected. There's no power connected. There's no hazard that 1910-119 would be applicable. However, change has to be managed. So Mm -hmm. I often differentiate between the two by just calling it change management. Change management, in my mind, still keeps the hazard in mind, as we talked about in the previous question, that a change in design, a vendor change, the size of a vessel, adding a T, et cetera, impacts your hazard. Mm -hmm. So from that lens, you have to manage a change. But it's not an MOC per se, because MOC has the connotation of a live operating unit which has training requirements and all of that stuff, which we don't. We haven't even produced the first document for training. So it is not, doesn't really quite fit. But in Mm -hmm. the change management mindset, one needs to then look at the safety impact, but you also look at cost and schedule impact. So change management in a project world, prior to going live, shall we say, and bringing in the raw material, requires looking at all of that and how you have to have a system in place. And you mentioned earlier that we go back and do one HAZOP. It may end up being several because you run into different problems. So you have to have a system that's nimble enough Mm -hmm. to be activated several times in the detail phase, detail design phase to make sure we didn't bust the budget because this is post final funding. Mm -hmm. We're not impacting schedule and we're honoring the boundaries of the HAZOP. I like your approach of 
a little bit different terminology. Keep those separate. One yeah, is on the to. project side, and then one is on the process safety side. That's okay. right. So a lot of large projects that you've worked with, you're talking new buildings, new facilities, you know, large installations. How do you handle uh, facility siting? That's one of the components that should be kept in mind for uh, PHA. And obviously when you're putting in new facilities, it's even more important to look at that. So what's your approach for that? Facility siting fundamentally, again, this is benefits of being my career starting, I should say, when 1910 came out, because at that time, and even to, well, at that time, there were no clarifications. Now you go back to the OSHA site, there are about 300 plus clarifications on the, yes. on the rule. <laughs> so a lot of questions were asked about facility siting. The genesis of that idea was the Texas City explosion, among many other incidents that harmed people in the vicinity of a blast zone. One needs to remember that. It's the intent of the facility siting is primarily to keep bodies out of harm when they don't need to be. Like operators clearly are operating. But if I'm, like happened in Texas City, or an engineering team doing work in the vicinity, the considerations need to be on the blast zone in that case. Mm -hmm. So early in stages, stage two maybe, stage three of the project, one should do a study for establishing the blast zones. If Mm -hmm. there's dust involved, we do a dust hazard analysis to kind of understand what's the worst case, what's the boundaries of that, and for the neighborhood, if nobody else even. And then the other aspect of facility siting tends to be, we talk about human factors that has been Mm -hmm. an outgrowth of this. It's also a consideration to have in design phase that we can do use of 3D modeling now. So first, I guess the high level, it is very powerful too. High level, you got to get the spacing right to make sure we are not, you know, harming civilians and or staff that are not required or um, uh, essential, non-essential. Thank you. Mm And then consider human factors as part of that, because often the checklist, we call them separately, but it's the same concept is the siding of it, of course, has to do with blast. Then and the human factor part is, I consider it anyway, a subset of how humans interact and who needs to be doing what, where and why and how, et cetera. So, right. but that's more in detail design where a 3D model is created and you can actually right. see yourself being there. This is mm-hmm. very powerful. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times, as you said, you've got checklists in engineering design. Usually there's all of your ragged gap requirements. You know, NFPA has a lot of distance spacing and things of that sort. One other tool that uh, sometimes employed uh, for these large projects is a quantitative risk assessment, a QRA. A HAZOP is qualitative. You add in LOPA becomes a little more semi-quantitative, but a QRA is a very different animal in that it is very detailed engineering and assesses the, you're talking about the blast zones for different kinds of releases and looks at prevailing weather patterns and all these probabilities, and they roll up hundreds or thousands even uh, potential release scenarios include all the modeling of where your blast zones are, what your overpressures are, and then 
compile all of that into statistical numbers of probability of fatality based on where people are housed and that sort of thing. So it's a tool that sometimes facilities as a whole will do one for the site. Um, if you've got a strong process safety corporate oversight that says we need one of these for every site, but other times facilities just don't do it. However, if you're spending the money for a large capital project and adding new buildings and significant facilities, it might be worth worth doing, uh, but they're a little more unusual. Right, especially if you're building within close distance to housing around the you know, right. middle of the Off-site, city. Off-site, essentially, yes, yeah. All right, so you've talked a little bit about operator procedures and uh, training, which are obviously big components of process safety. But in your projects, usually you've got an engineering design team that may not be as comfortable with writing training procedures. That may not be what they typically do. So I've seen a lot of projects, a little bit smaller than what you've worked with, that those tasks often get either overlooked or kind of shunted to the last second and everybody's scrambling and saying, oh, shoot, we forgot. We've got to get these uh, operating procedures written and we've got two weeks left. Right. (laughs) Um, How do you handle that? So it really comes to experience uh, in, in the case of project manager to keep an eye on that, sadly. And I say sadly because, you know, it, I wish there was a ingrained thought process like we have for a HAZOP and having to do it around that. Now, you could argue 1910-119 already requires operator training, So, but it's, it's still interesting how it's an afterthought. Now, HAZOP itself, first of all, it's an amazing operating training, operator training tool. Yes. Mm-hmm. You put that in front of an operator, they'll know a lot of the information that is obviously safety focused, but it actually walks them through the plan. You know, if I have too much flow, too little flow, if it gets hot, if it gets right. cold, so that's perfect. Now, yeah, and they know one all problem those deviations with, and consequences. Exactly, yep. exactly. So it, it gets their mind mind frame straight. However, one deficiency in that is typically as mind as grueling, I should say, a HAZOP can be. The team tends to become abbreviated and may not flesh out a scenario that an operator needs to appreciate. So Mm -hmm. just putting a HAZOP report in front of them may not achieve the results. So you got to spend a little more time to explain the scenarios better with an operator mind and operator's Mm -hmm. perspective in mind. Excuse me. Having been in operations myself for 11 years at at an ethylene unit, I gained better appreciation for what to do there. So... As a project manager, then when I get a HAZOP, I usually get a project engineer to go back and see if they can, given what they know about the process, flesh it out, as I call mm-hmm. it, to make it operator ready. Right. Sometimes the, then, the wording and the way things are written in a in a HAZOP, it's not exactly plain English. And so sometimes not, it helps to it, put those in. Exactly. Um, and, and, a little and I more understand communication why, right. friendly exactly. format. Right. But I appreciate why it's not plain English, mm-hmm. because we got to move on. We have, you know, yes. 300 notes to cover and we're tying <laughs> up 20 people in a room and all of that happens. Mm-hmm. So these are going to be after the fact activities. Then comes, again, thinking of operator and maintenance training for that matter, then comes all this equipment I'm buying. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. So it's fine for the operator to know if I have too much flow, but it's another thing to know how do I generate too much flow using this gizmo I'm buying them. Mm -hmm. So then all that vendor information comes into play. Right. Typically, at minimum, I've seen projects, they just get the vendor data, which often is very high-level, glossy sales brochure, dump it in a binder and hand it off, which is absolutely <laughs> useless to the maintenance guy who needs to know what kind of filter he needs when he has to maintain it, or the fuse mm -hmm. type, or the operator needs to know what lever to pull, what button to push, and when, and how does the screen work. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of attention to be paid to that sort of stuff in detail design, in fact. If we don't do that, as you mentioned, it's gonna become a scramble at the end and the right. product is less than, less than useful, really. And mm -hmm. essentially what happens is the plant itself has to go contact the vendors again themselves after startup and cover the gaps, yep. which is not, I, I don't consider that a good, a well-executed project. Right. Yes, you have to definitely plan your project with the end user in mind, as you're saying, and uh, always, always make sure you even, do a thorough job up front to set the stage right. for them to be successful. Yeah, you have to have a team that understands maintenance dedicated to the project so they can ask the right questions before mm -hmm. we buy even the equipment. Somebody needs to tell purchasing that, hey, when we buy this equipment, make sure I get a spare parts list, make sure I get a maintenance manual. And then when the product comes in, it still needs some massaging to make it into plain English, as you call it, rightfully so, because the vendors often write stuff that is high level or, you know, kind of right. not intending to be confusing, but they are. So somebody has to have the time to call the vendor back and then write the procedures. So by the time we get to startup, they're all ready. Right. Right. One other thing I was curious on is, have you seen cases where there's a DCS simulator put together to help train the operators on the control system? Absolutely. The early days, you would go to the vendor site and send the operators there, which depending on the schedule and proximity and geography, you might still want to do. But nowadays, the electronic cost and the hardware cost is not that much to have a dedicated station for simulation already included in your design of the control room. That allows then that for us to go live, if you will, on one station and operators that are on site, they can play with it, understand it. But that's a mm -hmm. very useful tool, not only from obviously how to operate the plant, but also how to interface with the screen right? Mm -hmm. the, the human factor again, Exactly. you know, the color scheme, the number of alarms, there's a whole other thought process that needs to go into mm -hmm. alarm management. Do you really want an operator to be hit by hundred alarms? They're not going to be, they're not going to be able to respond to all of them. So you got to right. do prioritizations. All of that thought process needs to go in and DCS simulation gives you that opportunity to establish those before you go live. Yeah, yeah, that that's one of the tools that has definitely come a long way since I was doing projects early in my career. So, okay, yeah. yes. So we talked a little bit about the maintenance interface and making sure that they get the right information. Just like operator training and operating procedures, a lot of times I see people come up to the pre-startup safety review and the question about are all of your equipment inspections already set up? And they're like, oh, no, we haven't even got this stuff installed yet. Well, I'm not linking about, <laughs> about right. inspections yet. But how do you approach that? So the 
best and really the only approach is to have, as I mentioned earlier, for procedure development, to have a maintenance representative or two during detailed design mm -hmm. that have, assuming, let's say, the company, the owner, has SAP as their asset management software or whatever software they have. Whatever asset software, management. they're all very similar. Somebody needs to go into that and start populating it with the tag numbers we assign to the compressors and the pumps and the vessels, et cetera. Mm -hmm. As these vendor drawings come in, vendor documents come in, mostly drawings, if we're talking about inspection, a resource or two need to be dedicated to studying that information mm -hmm. and establishing inspection criteria and adding that to their PM system that when a PM work right. order comes out six months from now, a year after startup, whoever gets it, they realize on this vessel, you know, three inch thick is important. I got to, I got to check for color. I got to, you know, maybe check for heat, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know that unless you asked or looked at drawings and somebody asked, if we don't, then the plant's strapped with that responsibility to figure it out later. So right. again, a good, well-executed project would have the resources to think through not only the training part of the maintenance and ops, but also the inspection part for maintenance, mm -hmm. even spare parts for their stuff. We mentioned that earlier. Right. All of those have to be thought through, but it requires a project to put the, I'm running this plant cap on, rather than I'm just putting a project, I'm building a project and that's it. Yeah, I like your idea of having those resource personnel involved early on and start populating that well in advance of the system going live because as you said you can you may order you know 50 pumps and they all come with one installation operating maintenance manual and you need to reference that okay this manual goes with these 50 different pieces of equipment exactly i got just one and put it with the first one and then the other 49 the other are scratching their head or not only that, the vendor doesn't send documentation per our tags, right? They just yeah. send it. Somebody mm -hmm. has to associate this is with this tag specifically. The other thing to consider is that if you have the personnel to put this data into the system and spend all that time to mature it, one of the considerations that I think comes up for people is that, well, what if I change something? What if I run into a problem? last minute i'm about mm -hmm. to go put a purchase order in for all this equipment find out the vendors da 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 and I, they can't deliver now i change gears now that we have to go mm -hmm. undo all that work we did in the maintenance management system mm -hmm. which can happen right but yep. percentage of that happening is so low i still believe it's worth to do the bulk of the work but also if you have a well oiled machine as an organization of a project you'll be able to risk assess what are the equipment that I'm iffy on and maybe have yeah. pre-calls to the vendors and say, how does it look? What's the market right, et cetera, to mm -hmm. then narrow the focus of the maintenance team to say, hey, 80% of this stuff, no brainer, it's not going to change. We're good. Start with those. Leave right. these 20% aside till we absolutely finish and then add them later. So it's manageable. That's a good approach. Okay. One other thing that is often challenging is when you finish your construction, you're ready to start up, PSM requires you to do a pre-startup safety review, a PSSR. How do you approach that? You know, when you've got this massive project that, you know, millions of dollars and maybe multiple buildings or multiple production lines, do you do one PSSR or multiple? How do you approach it? In my career, I have ran into scenarios where 
there is a great interest in doing one PSSR for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Another camp, almost opposing camp, wants to do multiple PSSRs, by the way, for the same project, mind you, right. for another list of reasons. And what I have seen, there's merit to both sides. So it becomes a risk-based decision because one approach is mountain of paperwork that has its own consequences of confusion for the team and loss of data Mm -hmm. and mixing data. Mm -hmm. The other approach is less paperwork, but you might miss something in reality in the field. So there is definitely a balance to do so. PSSR on an air system, nitrogen system, probably can be done as one big old PSSR. So maybe one, one utilities. You you front. do or or one utilities that are not mm-hmm. dangerous, right? Because mm-hmm. you could have natural gas as a utility, and that's a different animal, or okay. pure oxygen for that matter, which is a very different animal. Right. On balance, it is to do PSSR justice. Definitely divide things by system. Mm-hmm. Then you get into well. If I have a, I don't know, gas oil system, pump, compressor, vessel, whatever in that loop, mm-hmm. and I have, you know, something I'm blending in, does that become part of the system or not? Those all have to be thought through as a project team with process team and process safety mm-hmm. team decisions included on what is a system that we're going to do a PSSR. So right. those are all decisions and you got a custom bottom line. You have to custom build these PSSR checklists. You cannot pull a canned one. If you're doing a project with an existing site, just pull their PSSR checklist. It's not going to work. Will we check a box that I did a PSSR? Yes. Mm -hmm. But are you truly meeting the intent of a safety review of that system? Probably not. I've seen PSSR checklists that have Bleeders are plugged, which is important, and Mm -hmm. are things reachable? Some of it's kind of human factor gets mixed into it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. But again, we need to sit down as a team and remember what's the point of a PSSR that is, by the way, intended to back check things that are not visible. What do I mean by that? PSSR is the last check that everything has been done. Well, I can see. Do I have paint? Do I have insulation? Do I have plugs and bleeders? Those I can see. Fine. How do I know about quality control? How do I know the welds were tested and if they passed? Mm -hmm. Do I have all my valves open or closed position? What do I need during startup? Is it important? Are my car seal opens in? And Mm -hmm. if not, why not? All of those, now you can see a car seal open. Don't get me wrong. But my point is the PSSR form needs to include questions like, where is the QA sheet that says I'm good to go on this, for example? Right. If you have and a often, QA on flange makeup or exactly. your hydro test or Is the whatever. gasket the right gasket, right? So you mm-hmm. got to think it, it is intended to be the last check of every previous step that the project is mm-hmm. doing anyway. A good project right. is doing QAQC as you go along. PSSR is just to, is a third party, if you will. Mm-hmm. auditing that all that's been done. So it is important to have that question. So my cold eyes review PSSR captain mm-hmm. can ask, all right, we're at the QA step, show me. Mm-hmm. And they got to produce the documents and satisfy right. yourself that it's there or it's uploaded somewhere. You can pull it up on the screen and say, yep, mm-hmm. for this equipment, which brings up, by the way, that all the QAs have to be filed accordingly. 
in a right way. So again, a cold eyes review of PSSR can easily find it, which sometimes that thought process hasn't been put in place early enough. So then we have to go scramble about, oh, well, I did that, but it's here and I filed it under the vessel, not under the pump. So those right. have to be sorted out. But thinking through PSSR from that lens early enough alleviates those other problems as well. Great. Yeah, those are some good good thoughts with how to how to approach that, that uh, your projects are unique and, and perhaps different than what your ongoing operations would be looking for. So not only that, Molly, it's interesting. In my career, I have heard many times, oh, we're going to just cookie cut one project to another. Just do the one and then we're going to cookie cut. <laughs> I have never seen that work. Every project, even if it's for the same product, ends up being unique. And the mm -hmm. team needs to have that mindset that you cannot just switch off and say, I can just copy. You cannot. You got to be totally on top of this is a unique product I'm putting together. Right. So the last uh, topic, and we've touched on it throughout this discussion, is the documentation. Obviously, projects generate a mountain of paperwork, and that forms a basis of your process safety information that's required as one of your uh, PSM elements. So any last thoughts? I know we've talked about it, but thinking about how to properly hand that off from the project team to your operations team that are going to run this moving into the future? Absolutely. So proper handoff on the totality of the documents, which we've already talked about operating procedures and maintenance related items. Now you're expanding to future process engineers mm -hmm. that are going to be running the plant, future metallurgists, future QA, QC lab, future, etc. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, again, pre-planning, conversation with the end user about what are your philosophies of operating what's the type of information that you want to have found and is do you have already have a system or not do we want to mm -hmm. file by equipment number do we want to file by system some plants are divided by you know street talk like hot side cold side you know mm -hmm. so they might prefer everything going to be on their hot side be called HS dash. So all of that uh -huh. has to be okay. figured out, right? Mm -hmm. So they can find it easier later. It's not for me to dictate. And I can. Projects often do. They just hand off stuff. And <laughs> that, that's not the best way. It. It's, not, it's not a quality <laughs> yeah. product. Quality product considers the end user. And you mm -hmm. find out what the end users, if there is an existing system that we're plugging into, you absolutely have to honor what they're doing. If it's truly greenfield, it's a little easier, right? We can mm -hmm. design it together as we go. But it is very important to have the kinds of documents that a future process engineer needs are all available. I've seen process engineers do new projects that need to pull up vessel drawings. And mm -hmm. so do maintenance, by the way, but it's a different use. Right. So you got to consider that. And the lab system, they want to have certain tagging systems. And for them, the gas oil stream, for example, means something different than for the operator. So all those details have to be thought through before the final handoff of the, of the drawings. All right. So I, I think we've covered most of it, unless you had any kind of last minute thoughts on rolling process safety in with projects, or do you think we covered the uh, essentials? We have. I think high level, though, this discussion just reminds me how important it is to plan ahead, 
and have the end user in mind, which from one lens, that's essentially what process safety is, is you think through what you're doing ahead of time mm -hmm. and consider the end user or consider or the, the people result. around you or the end <laughs> result. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's about thinking ahead and just don't walk into the situation having not thought through the details at, at a very high level. That's what it's about. Great. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge and expertise on uh, large capital projects with us. I hopefully, audience learned quite a bit by keeping process safety in mind during your engineering design and your project. Hopefully, you can incorporate process safety from the very beginning and improve operations in the future. So finally, if you have a comment about this week's episode or an idea for a future episode, feel free to uh, send us an email at podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. If uh, listeners want to uh, follow up with Brad, uh, you can look for him on LinkedIn under Brad Bazargani. While much of our discussion in this episode was focused on large capital projects, the approach can be applied to all sizes of projects. Although smaller projects may have fewer resources and a shorter timeline, it still pays to keep the end user in mind and get operations and maintenance personnel involved from the very beginning. If you handle smaller projects, you might also want to listen to podcast episode 74, The Challenges of Engineering in a High Hazard Plant, to get the perspective of a project manager who handles these smaller projects. And finally, our goal at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems. And it is our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like fires, explosions, and toxic releases. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help you on your process safety journey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be safe out there. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.